You're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams with host Brenda and Jordy on CITR 101.9, exploring local music and local food. Tune in to learn about the best eats and tunes from your neighborhood and a weekly pairing for your date calendar. Warning, the endorsements and criticism expressed during the show are the opinions of the hosts, unless clearly identified as advertising. Put in your earbuds and fire up your taste buds. It's Peanut Butter and Jams. Hello. Hello. It's Brenda from Peanut Butter and Jams, and we are missing Jordy since it's the holiday season and he's very busy at SIPS. But I have a new co-host, and her name is Kendra Lowen. She's been a regular correspondent. Hello, everyone. Welcome here, Kendra. Well, thank you. So we've got a really exciting show planned for you. Uh, can you tell us some things that we planned? Well, we are going to be uh, featuring an interview with uh, Gus, who is the uh, sh- the head chef at the Perch Restaurant upstairs here at the Sub. And uh, we are also going to talk about a tasting we did. And we are going to be discussing mulled wine, because tis the season for mulled wine. Uh, and, uh, and also some great music. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start with a track by Energy Slime. Not sure how many of you were at the Mint Records Christmas party last Saturday. Uh, This song is called Pump Up the Dream, and it's on Hot Heroes 2, which is the recent Mint Records compilation. Not attained.
just played you some music uh first we heard energy slime pumping up the dream and then we are the city the song was keep on dancing from above club and that was their newly released album and then that was just francesca bellacourt the song was senses off the album hush hush and she just played in chindig last tuesday that was a cool track i like that Mm -hmm. so now we're going to play an interview that we just did today with Gus Stiefenhofer Branson. Mm-hmm. He is the executive chef at uh, Perch upstairs here in the Nest in the new student union building. On floor four. So if you look up there, you can see the twinkling of their mood lights. It's really beautiful atmosphere up there. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. So here's the interview. This is Brenda from Peanut Butter and Jams on CITR 101.9 FM, and I'm here with uh, today's co-host, Kendra Lowen. Hi, hello there. And we're here interviewing Gus Stiefenhofer Branson, the chef de cuisine at Perch. Hello. Welcome here. Thank you for having me. Great. So first of all, can you tell us about Perch? Um, Perch is a brand new restaurant, so we're still trying to figure out what we're doing exactly. Um, Being perched at the very top of the student nest, uh, we are a, uh, I guess the best way to describe it would be a contemporary Canadian or contemporary West Coast restaurant um, trying to bring a downtown experience at a university price point. 
So we're trying to make stuff that is uh, local, seasonal. Uh, we're trying to do things that are approachable and affordable for the students, but that still pique the interest of everyday diners. So would you say that your target audience is students or generally? Um, we wanted to make it something that the students would be interested in and something that they can afford, um, but we do want to be a destination restaurant as well. So I mean the challenges in that are trying to source the best local ingredients and use sustainable seafood definitely drive my prices up. So trying to keep the prices in line with um, affordability is been a challenge, but I think when you look at my menu compared to any Joey's, Earl's, Cactus Club, any of those restaurants, we're definitely at a much lower price point and mm -hmm. our food is considerably better. <laughs> so how did you get involved and were you involved in putting all the menus and the dishes together? So I was actually hired in November of 2014, um, thinking that the restaurant would open in <laughs> January. Surprise. Uh, yeah, surprise! <laughs> Upon starting on that day, it was quickly apparent that we were a lot further out than that, um, which gave me a lot of time to write a lot of different menus. And I probably wrote four or five different menus before we actually opened. So, uh, you know, I wrote a, me a winter menu to start, then I wrote a spring menu, mm. then I wrote a summer menu, and then we actually opened with the fall menu, which we currently have. And now I'm currently working on a new menu to open with uh, come January. Um, so it's been a really exciting and fun process to go through um, opening a restaurant. I mean, I've never really done anything of this scale. Also, a 300-seat restaurant is a little bit crazy. Also, considering I come from a 30-seat restaurant where I spent the last six years of mm. my life cooking. So it's a bit of a, bit of a game changer. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a neat challenge. Yeah, and I mean, a huge challenge also is hiring a staff. Um, you know, initially the mandate of the AMS is to hire primarily students, but mm. to cook at this level, uh, you do need professionals. And, you know, we do have room for um, students to be dishwashers that can come and hopefully move up. But to this point, we've kind of had a hard time because right now, me and most of my staff are working 12 to 14 hours a day, and most of the students that we've hired on can only work in kind of two, three hour shifts. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really work for the type of kitchen that we are. Like, I'd love to have you know, kids in that are going to be engaged and, and want to be interested in working in that type of restaurant, but at this point, we haven't really found any people that really fit that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's definitely a challenge. I mean, I feel like, you know, we're running the same kind of schedules that a Michelin star restaurant in Europe might run, um, coming in at 9 and going home at around 9 or 10 at night. Mm -hmm. Are there other challenges associated with being part of a large not-for-profit? Um, I think the main challenge is just getting everyone to be on the same page as to what we're trying to do up there um, and understanding, you know, bringing me on sets a certain tone, a certain standard of what the food is going to be like and until we were actually open I don't think a lot of people realized what that was going to be. Mm. Uh, I mean, obviously at this scale we have to figure out where we're making our compromises but I kind of set a very high standard in how we cook things and the ingredients that we source. Um, so yeah, that makes things pretty interesting considering every food service outlet in the old building was at a different operative. Um, mm. You know, buying a lot of stuff in um, pre-made and prefab, and you know, making sauces out of powders and stuff like that. So in Perch, we make everything from scratch. Yeah, and, and we love the concept of, of locally sourced and seasonal ingredients, and, and Vancouver is probably a great place, a great city to be able to do that in. Um, but it must have its challenges too, I mean, we're in December, the, it's, not, it's not a prime growing season. So what inspires you to cook uh, at this time of year? Well, I mean, it's interesting to me, especially coming from Winnipeg, where the growing mm -hmm. season is a lot shorter. And I was actually just at a meeting this morning with the uh, Vancouver Local Food Hub. They did a kind of meet and greet with a lot of the farmers. And so we started looking at, uh, I guess it was just to get in touch with who's actually growing the food and then trying to set up a plan for next year. Um, and they're a really interesting program because they basically uh, have, they work with the Vancouver Farmers Market and they bring a bunch of different farmers together so that they do have um, a limited supply chain. So instead of having eight different suppliers, they kind of go to all these different farms pick your order from all them and then it all goes on to one truck which makes things a lot easier for me. Um, so with that I was able to see a lot of different stuff and I mean there's a lot of people don't know that the potatoes um, that come out of the ground in kind of August, September, October 
um, are generally still sellered and available still in March, April, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. So there is a way to extend a lot of that seasonality. Uh, I mean, within leeks and beets and celery ac and a lot of those hardier root veg. I mean, you can make that stuff last right through until the spring when you start seeing some of the new stuff coming out. Mm -hmm. um, so in Perch, it's really great because I get to work with um, UBC Farm, which is amazing. Uh, North Arm Farms up in Pemberton, um, Stony Paradise out in the valley, and a few other ones that we're going to slowly start introducing and getting to kind of base my menus around those seasonal products. I mean, yeah, I'm still going to have to buy some stuff through some of the bigger um, uh, supply chains, but as much as possible I'm buying local and like UBC Farm is like, you know, a kilometer away local, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And you spent some time at the farm? Um, yeah, last spring we got to go before they were really in action and meet with one of the main, um, the main guys who runs the farm and kind of look at what the summer is going to look like and he gave me a schedule and so we started um, obviously Perch didn't open till September but I'm still on salary here and still um, beyond just the day to day of getting everything up and going need to keep myself busy so I actually ended up doing a ton of uh, preserving mm. so we'd buy radishes, beets, um, green strawberries, uh, garlic scapes and canned all those things and now I'm using them and I'll probably be using them throughout the entire winter which is pretty cool to have that summer stuff that you're still using in almost yeah. at the next season. So you probably won't have that luxury of time to do all that preserving going forward. Um, well, I'm trying to make sense of how the next year is going to go. I mean, forecasting a brand new business like this is, is difficult because you never know how things are going to go. Typically around here, summer slows down. Mm -hmm. Um, but we are gaining momentum in the restaurant, so it is getting busier and busier, so I'm not sure how much time we'll have, but I like to think that I'll have some t time in the summer to uh, be doing, you know, I'd like to make enough tomato soup in the summer when the beautiful um, summer tomatoes are there that I can run that tomato soup throughout the entire winter. Like I have goals like that so that we can kind of preserve that summer bounty and uh, make use of it throughout the year. So where's the canning cellar? Um, well, actually, if you look in Perch, I have a huge amount of cans that adorn the, the main line. Um, and then we also have a ton of fridge pickles in the uh, big commissary uh, walk-in fridge. And um, yeah, I mean, we have it kind of stashed away everywhere uh, <laughs> at this point. We're trying to figure out uh, once they start refurbishing the old sub, if we can find a place in there to keep all of our stores. Um, and something that Ryan Bissell, who was the original executive chef, had tried to set up was a canning workshop where basically uh, students would come in and we would teach them how to do canning and preserving. Um, we'd buy all the produce they put together um, and we'd put together the package so that they come in and learn and um, they get to take one jar home, we keep three, so it's kind of an mm. interesting way mm -hmm. to do mise en place, um, teach people about preserving and then also um, you know, get some work done for us. Mm -hmm. And that might even work as a continuing ed program like the wine mm. tasting course. Exactly. So something to get everyone involved in. Mm -hmm. Have you connected with the, the cooking club? Is that what they're called? Uh, oh, yeah, there is a big cooking club. Yeah. No, and I mean, that's kind of stuff like once we get our feet on the ground a little bit more that I want to start doing a little bit more. Uh, we have the rooftop garden, which um, we're trying to build a relationship with them as well. Um, so this, this summer we were able to uh, use a lot of their herbs for like finishing garnishes, um, like nice little borage flowers, dill flowers, that sort of thing. And we bought a little bit from them, but we're trying to, in the future, um, build a closer relationship so that we can kind of be involved in what they're planting. And then, you know, maybe have a little corner that's just for us for like a little victory herb garden. And <laughs> then um, also in the fall, kind of do some sort of uh, event where we go and help them harvest a bunch of stuff and then bring them into my kitchen maybe on a Sunday when the restaurant's closed and then, you know, teach them about cooking things different ways. Mm. So yeah, we're just trying to keep it growing, keep it interesting for everyone involved. Mm. So how do you manage your supply when crops don't really show up on time and the weather changes things and different farms have different challenges? Um, my menu's written on paper, which makes things very easy so for me. So just print out a new copy. Exactly. <laughs> I mean. It's, I don't like to be committed to one thing, and I also get bored super easily, so, and, you know, I think diners get bored too, I mean, yeah, we can have a menu for three months, and 
everybody loves everything and then all of a sudden people start loving stuff less because they've had it a few times so I like to keep on moving things around and you know mm -hmm. in the kitchen doing the same thing over and over until you've totally perfected it is awesome but then there comes a point where things become stagnant and then cooks become less interested in repeating mm -hmm. the same motions over and over so mm -hmm. yeah we keep on growing keep on moving and what's your background? Where did you get started? It sounds like you've moved around quite a bit. Uh, I started working actually at a speedy factory in Winnipeg. That was my first kitchen mm, job. I've uh, been there. <laughs> yeah, um, as a dishwasher and quickly moved up. Uh, when I was 16, I was you know running the kitchen more or less. Mm. Hired on all my high school friends. So it was this um, fantastically fun and debaucherous time. <laughs> uh, not so much about cooking hot cuisine, but more about um, pushing out, you know, seven, eight hundred people on mm. a Friday night. And then from there I went to culinary school, uh, did two years. Um, my second practicum I did in Germany, which really exposed me to what food could be and really kind of, um, it was an eye-opening experience because it really showed me, you know, there you only eat white asparagus kind of mm. May and June, and then that's, that's the only time. And then you wait until next year. Strawberries are kind of that May, June, July, and then you don't mess around. So I really appreciated that because, you know, back home you have strawberries year-round, but, you know, 11 of those months they're white and bullets in the middle. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty exciting. And while I was there, I actually met Scott Yeager. He was on Culinary Team Canada, and I went to the Culinary Olympics in Erfurt and uh, was introduced from there. Came back to Winnipeg. Winnipeg all of a sudden was very small. So started looking at the next thing, which happened to be Vancouver, and uh, working for Scott Yeager at the Pear Tree, which I did for uh, almost six years. Um, started as a as a commie and ended up being the sous chef for the last uh, three years or so, uh, which really just impressed on me a standard, you know, and beyond just, I mean, this is how we cook things, this is how we set up a station, this is how we clean things, this is how we organize ourselves, and so I mean that was a pretty um, yeah, a very significant uh, learning time in my life and uh, yeah, just really kind of helped me develop my own culinary voice and then when this opportunity came along I jumped on it because getting to open something like this is a once in a lifetime type chance. Yeah. We, we've been doing some uh, reading about some of your um, environmentally friendly practices and things like worm composting and, and things like that and we both kind of know people who have dabbled with that at their own kind of personal kitchen level with varying degrees of success. So tell us about some of the joys and challenges of, of those kinds of kitchen practices. Well, I mean, um, starting from composting, which I think a lot of commercial kitchens don't do, and um, it's just something that's always come naturally to me. I mean, at my home with my parents, my parents uh, have a gigantic garden, so we always compost, and then, you know, in the spring you dig up your compost and dig it into your garden, and um, it just seems like the normal thing to do, so at Pear Tree we compost it as well. Um, so here that comes naturally to always have a compost bin and I mean when you look at it you're, you're um, probably two-thirds of what your you know of your waste in the kitchen is is uh, biodegradable. So when you look at composting that instead of throwing it in the bin what an impact that makes is pretty huge. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess we have the uh, um, crazy City pod uh, composter downstairs, and I think that's run by a student club. So I don't know too much details of how that process exactly works, but I think it's it's something that you know more restaurants should take on. Um, I guess other practices um, beyond that, tough to say exactly on a day-to-day -day level. Mm -hmm. I mean, just sourcing local and and uh, sustainable and ethical, ethically raised um, product is pretty important to you know limiting your um, environmental footprint. Mm -hmm, sure. I mean, being in a building that's 100% ocean-wise is pretty cool. And I mean, I have struggles with my suppliers from time to time because they keep on trying to sell me, you know, prawns from Mexico or, you know, um, fish from Thailand. And I have a hard time being on the Pacific Ocean um, buying any seafood that has to get on a plane to get here. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, no reason I should be buying Atlantic cod when I have fantastic cod here. Uh, so those are the type of things that, that are, you know, at my level, the things that we look at. Great. Well, just to, just to wrap up, can you tell us a bit about the 
the holiday specials or what what's going on right now that you want to um, so right now we have a 25% uh, discount uh, across the board on food for students and just to try and get them in I mean there's been kind of this stigma attached uh, when they were calling the restaurant fine dining and I think that's kind of scared a lot of the students away so we're trying to get them in the door and show them that hey it's um, you know affordable and the food isn't you know it's meant to be enjoyed and it's not this formal setting that that uh, you know you only go to once a month or once every few months we want people coming in once a week or um, so yeah, 25% off for the students. Uh, also, we have a holiday menu, uh, a four-course menu that's running until the end of next week when we go on Christmas vacation. So we start off with a little um, uh, carrot soup with uh, spruce shoot oil. Uh, then we have a choice of either a Belgian endive salad with apples and hazelnuts or a uh, house-made terrine that comes with uh, pickles from UBC Farm, a little bit of toast, uh, and a cranberry cumberland. Uh, and then we have a couple different options for the main course as well. We have a slow cooked turkey breast with confit leg, uh, uh, crispy stuffing, squash puree, roasted Brussels sprouts. And then um, the vegetarian option is a squash and pumpkin risotto with sunchokes, Brussels, um, Parmesan, uh, roasted pearl onions, which is just fantastic I mean a lot of times vegetarians kind of get left out but I think cooking vegetables is, is you know a lot more fun sometimes mm. um, so we try and make our vegetarian options pretty cool and then the dessert is a uh, very German dessert it's a uh, Lebkuchen which is a uh, kind of German Christmas cookie which we've translated into a cake and a crumble um, a tonka bean cream poached apples uh, speculatius which is kind of also a German uh, Christmas cookie and then a preserved cherry sorbet mm. very holiday sounds amazing I'm very hungry yeah. <laughs> yes great and perches located on the third floor fourth, fourth floor. floor of the student union building the nest um, so thank you very much guys
Indie rock bands Taco Cat and Sally Ford are co-headlining on Saturday, December 12th at the Cobalt. Doors open at 7 with the show starting at 8.30. This event is 19 plus. You can get your tickets today online at timberconcerts.com or at Red Cat and Zulu Records. women dressed in lingerie were hanging from the ceiling on meat hooks. In an adjacent room, a man was in bed with two deceased females, also wearing lingerie. He positioned their arms in a sexy embrace. Down the hall, a man holding a chainsaw stood over the motionless body of a sixth woman lying on a table covered in plastic. These are scenes from a popular music video by a Grammy award-winning artist. If we want violence against women to stop, shouldn't we stop treating it like entertainment? Join the conversation at hashtag not okay. So that was Taco Cat. The song was Psychic, sorry, Psychic Death Cat off a single, and CITR is sponsoring their show later this week, so you can go see them in Vancouver. They're actually from Seattle, so we broke the rules on this one. And before that was a band from Vancouver called Swim Team. The song was recourse in the album Freedom Constraint. So some great new local bands. Yeah, that was great. Uh, you also heard an extended interview with Gus from Perch. Yeah, it's a, the cool new restaurant upstairs here at The Nest on the fourth floor. Uh, and after we chatted with Gus, he uh, brought us a tasting of their holiday dessert, which was very yummy. It basically tastes like Christmas on a plate. Mm-hmm. And what were the things on the plate? Well, uh, so he took a couple of versions of traditional Christmas cookies, like a Lebkuchen uh, and some gingerbread crumble. Um, and then there was what he what he calls tonka bean cream, um, which is kind of like a vanilla creamy thing from Brazil, and um, cherry sorbet, which he made from cherry pit syrup, which was really fascinating to hear about, and a little apple chip, and it was really tasty. It was really tasty. Uh, I was really fascinated by cherry pit sorbet, mm-hmm. and he told us a bit about how you make it. Yeah, so he says that when you when you pit the cherries, so you're you're making cherries but for something else you keep the pits and the pits still have kind of a little bit of the fruit on it and then you can turn that into um, a syrup um, and then he uses that to make the sorbet and he said that the the pit itself lends a little bit of an almond flavor yeah kind of a kind of a stony fruity thing and you can he, mm-hmm. he says you can do it with other kinds of fruit too like peaches and stuff like that and the sorbet was really really tasted like cherry with sort of a nutty darker tone to it but really fresh and present yeah really nice kind of full cherry flavor but like actual cherry not like cherry candy or and not syrupy and not sugary so that was that was really nice Mm -hmm. really nice kind of add a a nice freshness to it Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, a real pleasure to go up there and have some tasty treats. Thank you so much, Gus. Mm-hmm. It was our pleasure. Uh, so now we're going to play a track by the Sumner Brothers. And the Sumner Brothers is our featured show. Yeah, they have a uh, their annual Christmas show coming up uh, next Saturday the 19th at... Is it the rickshaw, I believe? Or yeah. Or the Rio? We'll, One of those R theaters? We'll look it up and tell you. And they have a whole host of other musicians playing with them, so we're going to play one or two of those acts. Um, But this is It Wasn't All My Fault.
That was Wake Up Jack by Viper Central. And they're going to be part of the... Sumner Brothers Christmas Holiday Extravaganza at the Rickshaw Theater on Saturday, December 19th. Who doesn't love a Christmas extravaganza? I do. Right? Kind of everybody does. Yeah. It's reason enough to go. It is. So if you look on Facebook, there's a whole bunch of musicians playing. Um, lots of them. Lots. And... <laughs> uh, this is our our weekly pairing. So what we do every show is we recommend a show and then we tell you where to eat or drink in advance. And so we're going to tell you to go to the Emerald, which is in Chinatown. So it's just two blocks over. They have food, a uh, great atmosphere. It's sort of a retro, a retro bar with retro furnishings. And they have uh, really nice cocktails and a happy hour from four till six. Sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Cocktails so, before a show, it's a great idea. Exactly. Yeah. Just make sure you eat something, too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's for a long-lasting evening. So that was the Sumner Brothers. Um, the next thing we were going to talk about is everybody has their different Christmas or holiday rituals. And um, for some people, getting through that family gathering is a little difficult. Uh, So Kendra has one strategy that could be useful for you. Yes. So speaking of cocktails, uh, a few years ago, I um, started bringing uh, a really fancy kind of interesting cocktail recipe concoction to to family Christmas. Um, And so, you know, there's there's like usually a good amount of time ahead of time before you eat where everybody's just kind of running around mashing the potatoes and the kids are going crazy and you're having that awkward conversation with that guy in the corner and you know if you have a lovely cocktail in your hand then everything just feels to be a little bit less stressful so I started bringing cocktails with family gatherings um, and uh, and now it's become a tradition and it's it works great and everybody loves it so everyone's ready they come and they're like, Kendra, where's my Christmas exactly. cocktail? Yeah, that's what I bring to uh, to potluck now. Um, and now when I say who's ready for the cocktail, everybody puts up their hand. And nice. yeah, it's great. Can you give us some examples of recipes you've done in the past? Oh, I can't remember. Um, but I tend to start with uh, with sparkling wine or Prosecco or champagne or something because that feels really um, kind of Christmassy and sparkly. And festive. And festive, very festive. And uh, I'm also getting to bitters, and I got some bitters for my birthday this year. So the, this year's cocktail is going to definitely include bitters. Um, and I like to try new things as well. So I've never made a cocktail with Aperol before, but I've, I've enjoyed cocktails um, being made for me with that in it. So I think, I think the one I'm going to do this year is going to involve Aperol too. And uh, yeah, I usually like to throw some, you know, like a pomegranate seed into the bottom or... Um, I might try to do like a, a, a citrus peel on a toothpick or something, you know, just to make it a little bit fancy. Mm-hmm. There's, Sounds great. There's a ton of, you know, you can you can just Google Christmas cocktails and you'll get a ton of different suggestions. It's a fun way to waste an hour is just uh, look up Christmas cocktails. Now, uh, Kendra also did some research for us on mulled wine. Yes. Yeah, speaking of Christmas drinkies. Um, so mulled wine is, is again, feels like something really Christmassy and fun to do. Um, my first mulled wine this year was at the, uh, German Christmas market downtown. Glühwein? Glühwein, yes. Um, their, their Glühwein is a bit dangerous. It's, uh, it's, it's a really tasty thing to do. It's, you know, even if, if, especially if it's like a chilly night and you're kind of out there standing on cold pavement and... When your Glühwein runs out, you have to get more to keep your hands warm. It's just strategic. Worms you from the outside and the inside. Yeah, so so the basic concept of, of mulled wine um, is just red wine with mulling spices um, and sometimes uh, um, some fruit, either citrus fruit or, or raisins or something, and it's served warm or hot. Um, and it's traditionally served in the wintertime around Christmas. Um, and uh, apparently mulled wine is as old as um, as the second century in Rome. Wow. Yeah. Romans. Romans. The Romans brought mulled wine. And uh, when they started kind of conquering everything, then they kind of took their bits of their culture with them. And I guess mulled wine is, is one of the things that they took with them. So now it's all over Europe. Um, obviously, you know, Germany, you kind of think about... Um, the German Christmas market and, and, and the mulled wine there. Um, also places like Austria, and um, apparently it's pretty big in England, um, but also in the north. So Norway kind of has their own slightly different version of it. 
um, Eastern Europe too, like uh, Croatia and Serbia. Um, but apparently it's also made its way um, through probably um, European migration to places like Brazil and Chile, where wintertime is, you know, in June. So if you are in the middle of summer and you get a hankering for Gluvine, then you just need to go down to South America. Um, and then Canada, we also have our own kind of version of glue wine. And so that that's red wine with syrup, of course, maple syrup. What? Syrup. No. Yes, instead of sugar uh, and some kind of hard liquor. And this is called caribou. And I didn't even realize, I've heard of Where caribou. Where did you learn about this? I learned this on the Wikipedia. Hmm. But I've heard about caribou before and I just didn't realize what it was. I guess I'm not Canadian yet. <laughs> Caribou is even referenced, Brenda, in one of our favorite novels by Louise Penny, one of the Gamache novels that takes really? place in Quebec City. Wow, I missed it. Talks about caribou. And so it's apparently it's really dangerous. We need to try this. We should try it. Yeah. And they so they serve it at, uh, at Winter Carnival in Quebec. And uh, apparently people get really happy and party all night in the cold, cold winter. Hmm. Strategies. Yeah. For the cold. Yeah, and our good friend Rhonda made us some mulled wine just last weekend, mm-hmm. and it was very tasty, and it's uh, lovely to sip on kind of sitting by the fire with your Christmas tree lights glimmering at you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a nice tradition. It is. Great. Um, two more things. Um, one thing I like to do at Christmas is eggnog. Mm. Yep, homemade eggnog, so um, don't get too much too scared by those raw eggs because you can do it too um the trick is to you can blanch your eggs not blanch but uh there's a word for it i can't remember kind of scald them and dip them into boiling water for two seconds then they stay raw but you um basically sterilize the outside Mm. because when you get salmonella it comes from the shell and not from the inside of the egg right so you're dipping the whole egg before you break it into hot water. Yeah, for two or three seconds. Um, so then you can uh, make your boozy eggnog safely, and it's super light and fluffy. Mm-hmm. Um, point number two, uh, when we were talking to Gus uh, from Perch, uh, one of the things he mentioned was that he's done little, not little, sorry, he's done um, sort of a chef visit to this restaurant outside on the frozen river in Winnipeg. Um, speaking of the cold, mm-hmm. yeah, so um, we're pretty interested in that, and he's going in January, so we might have him back in to talk about that. Yeah, and what his uh, what his special tricks are for staying warm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alcohol is one of them, but there's got to be others. <laughs> yes, the collaboration among chefs. Yeah, sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now that you're all ready for the holidays, uh, we're going to play some Frazy Ford. She's festive all year. She is. Don't do it. Don't do it. Crap. So, uh, Freezy Ford is festive, but for some reason our sound files are uh, not totally playing along. So, Brenda's just working on that one. Oh, I think we have it. Here she is.
That was Frazy Ford. The song was called Done. And we're done. The show is done. The show is done. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us, Kendra. My pleasure. So lovely to have you show on the show again. Thanks, Brenda. Yeah. So next on air is Madeline with TikTok, a spoken word program. And I'm excited to see what they're going to talk about. And But we also wanted to give a shout out to Nardwar. Yeah, he's uh, he's recovering from something a little bit scary there. Yeah, and if you can search on Google and find out all about it. Um, <laughs> but he's recovering quite nicely in the hospital, so get well soon, Nardwar. So Come glad back. you're doing all right. Yeah, that's awesome. So thanks for listening, and have a great night. Old or New Testament? I think the New Testament. The question is, Pilate, remember Pilate from the New Testament? What does Pilate? He fiddled well. Yeah, no, well, just a minute. Let me ask the question, then you can give me the answer, okay? Did Pilate want Jesus to be crucified? Yep, uh, uh, Pontius Pilate washed his hands of it. So did he want him to be crucified? Yeah. No. 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 Well, tune in every Friday afternoon, 3.30 to the night. Watch your watch your Well, find a good church. It'll help you. Shindig, CITR's annual band competition, is in its 30th year of promoting new, local bands and providing great prizes. Shindig happens every Tuesday at Pat's Pub and Brewhouse at 403 East Hastings. So come check out the talent while they compete to win studio time, features in Discord or Magazine, buttons, merch, and more. Enjoy locally made beer, pool, and CITR's DJ spinning after the bands. Shindig Night 9 is happening this Tuesday, December 15th, featuring the Psychic Alliance, Making Strangers, and Bright Red Kite. Cover is $6 at the door, and the show is 19 plus. Check out CITR on Facebook or on Twitter at CITR Shindig for all the details.